Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. Today I speak with serial entrepreneur and technology founder, Allison Jennings. She's currently the CTO of Tonic Audio Labs, and she was formerly the CEO of Filament. We have a really interesting conversation where we talk a lot about the challenges of venture capital, hybrid remote teams, and really get into the depths of her personal challenge transitioning as a transgendered woman while being CEO of a technology company. I hope you enjoy this really heartfelt and engaging conversation. Welcome, Allie, to the Growth Pioneers podcast. It's good to see you. Great to be here. Thank you. I've been really looking forward to our conversation. I, you and I have known each other for, gosh, almost a decade now. That's right. It's been a while. It's been too long, honestly. It's, uh, I've been thinking a lot about you, and I really appreciate you making some time to come on to the show. It's always great to reconnect. So thanks for having me. Yeah. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about your background? Let's see. So my name is Allison Clift Jennings. I, oh boy, your background. Born and raised here in Reno, Nevada. So I'm a, a local Nevadan. Some people take a lot of pride in that. I'm appreciative that I've got to spend so much time here, but I've been lucky enough to really see a lot of other parts of the world, which I think is the danger of, you know, living where you were born. And I think that it's good that I had the opportunities to go and see those places, but have always been into technology ever since I was young, really into um, building and fixing things. My father was um, really, really handy and taught all three of us kids how to like change oil and how to, you know, in our cars and how to uh, fix things. So it's been kind of imbued in us ever since I was young around, you know, bending the world to your will in a way, in, in some ways, right, to try to actually make it work better for more people. And so I went to, got a computer science degree at University of Nevada, Reno. It took me a very long time because I was doing startups at the time. And so I would take some classes and do a startup and take some classes. But 14 short years later, I finally got my computer science degree. 14 <laughs> and, years? Uh, well, that's, uh, 14. that's, yeah, that's great. Better late than never. But, um, and then I did a whole host of, of startups throughout that 10 years since my first one was at 19 years old. I'm um, in my 40s now, so I've been doing them pretty much nonstop. And you were at, uh, you, you participated in Techstars pretty early on in your career, didn't you? I did. Yeah. You know, I was, let's see, when was it? About, I want to say 2010, 2010, I believe it was actually, yeah. Cause it was, I'm trying to get my, my numbers right, but it was very early on. So I, you know, I was, I was in a program in New York city. It was the inaugural New York city Techstars program. And I was in it with the company that I had just met the founder of in person the day before we started the program. So there's a whole interesting story about that. <laughs> but yeah, I've, uh, Techstars was an amazing, amazing experience. I did it twice, went through it with uh, Filament as well. But it's, um, it's a really special group of people and uh, something I always try to encourage anyone who has the opportunity to do yeah. to try to pursue. You were, uh, were you co-founder of that company? What, what was the company about? Yeah, so the, the company was called Tuvifor and it was an e-commerce kind of a gamified uh, luxury e-commerce uh, play, which is very different than what I've done you know, later on. So the long and short of it is that I, f I was working at a company in Pasadena as a chief architect, software architect for a very large e-commerce company. And it was a cool company. They did this very interesting sizing and shaping and size matching algorithm for women's apparel online. Um, I was working there for several years. And then I um, was found by this other startup. They were looking for someone to be a CTO for their company in the online apparel space. And there's some nuances there. So believe it or not, they found me on some job board. I don't remember where it was at. I think it was, or I found them on a job board. It was, it was just this kind of ubiquitous, weird kind of serendipity thing. They called me up, said, you know, we're looking for this. And I said, that sounds great. Except, you know, I'm not moving from Reno to New York City, even though I think it'd be great, but you know, I have children here and whatnot. So they said, well, great. So no problem. You can stay there. But we did apply to Techstars and I kind of smiled because I was like, there's no way they're going to get in. They called me two days later and said, hey, we got in. But bad news is that a majority of the founders need to be in New York. And my co-founder, the third founder, myself and the other two, just decided she's not going to leave her Wall Street job. So if you want to be in Techstars, you got to move to New York. <laughs> so, wow. So off I went in two weeks to go live in uh, Bushwick, Brooklyn for four months in the middle of the winter. Never been to New York City before. Never really lived away from, you know, my own home at yeah. any length of time. But um, an experience that was absolutely amazing. And I would do it all over again. 
And there was something connecting you between Reno and New York because at Filament, you went to Techstars in New York as well, didn't you? That's right. And that was <laughs> I never connected those two things. Yeah, yeah that's it was, been... and I think it was completely coincidental because we had been having gone through that program the first time and then that company failing miserably because of lots of reasons. I had built a relationship with some of the key people at Techstars, including David Cohen, right, who's the founder or the co-founder of Techstars. And so he was always very kind. And this was early days, right? They weren't quite as big as they were today. And so he was a little more reachable than he is today. He's a pretty busy guy. But he had said, hey, just keep me in, in the loop of what you end up doing next, which I thought was a really great compliment. But I figure he just says that to everybody um, when a company winds down. So I've been keeping emailing uh, him when I was doing new things. And when I had finally started Pinocchio and we had had a crowdfunding campaign, I had emailed him and you know, you never usually hear from these emails you send to investors. You just kind of, they send off into the ether and then you're like, I hope they got them. But when I sent one of the email updates saying that we had just had our first round of funding, our first lead investor uh, for this, he mailed back in like six minutes or something like that from when I sent it and said, hey, I want in personally um, with my own fund. I've never done hardware before, but hey, let's give it a shot. So he was a, a personal investor of Pinocchio. And then we went through building the company a little bit. And when we were starting to find our way into the enterprise space, that's when he mailed out and said, hey, you should really consider applying to Techstars again. And I said, that's weird. You know, we've already been through it once. Personally, it doesn't make any sense to. He's like, really, you should, you should apply again. <laughs> because he knew that there's such good resources to really, you know, step up your company with uh, investors and connectors and and you know, customers and things like that, that we would really need if we were moving to the enterprise space. So then I don't know why it was New York again, but it was a very cool way for him to, to help us out again. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I've always appreciated about you is you've had that connection. You've always been bullish on Reno. You, you've always said, I'm going to work here. I'm going to build the company here. Absolutely. And yet you would build bridges between our local startup ecosystem and, you know, organizations like Techstars. You really helped become a, you know, a leader in our ecosystem in the early days. I mean, you and I have been, you know, like I said, working together for, in it, well, known each other and working together through the ecosystem for, mm -hmm. you know, 10 years. In the early days, you really were setting a, you know, a, a directionality for other companies to follow. And I, and I just always appreciated the fact that you would go there and then yet bring it back to Reno and help build that foundation and be always contributing to building our ecosystem. Thank you. Yeah, it was important to me, you know, and I appreciate you saying that because it really is something that I wanted to see happen. I've always been a very firm believer that Reno has what it takes to be as good as any other city because what makes a good ecosystem are its people, not necessarily its location. And people could argue with me pro and con whether or not that's true. And I, I've heard the arguments for places like the Bay Area and whatnot, and they're true to some degree, but sure. fundamentally, and as we're seeing now with this mass exodus out of the Bay Area, the Bay Area is still doing great. And those companies that were founded there are still doing just fine post pandemic. So sure. the point is that it's people and Reno has some of the best people I've ever met. And so, I've always wanted to see it continue to thrive, even when, you know, we've had our ups and downs just like any city has, but I'm glad. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so you you were a co-founder of the company at Techstars. You, you know, you co-founded and were CTO of Pinocchio and then became CEO of Pinocchio's rebranded as Filament. That's right. And now your your role is what CTO of a new company, and t tell me a little bit about the new company. Yeah, so I'm the CTO of this new company. The company's name is Tonic Audio Labs, and it's a little bit different. You know, Pinocchio and Filament were focused very much on the well, specifically Filament was focused on the enterprise and industrial space, which is a very unusual place to spend as a startup, unless you have deep connections into industrial and enterprise already. Um, it can be a very lonely place because you know, you're dealing with these massive corporations that have unlimited budgets, essentially, if they believe in what you're doing. And if they don't, then they have zero budget and they'll just you know, bleed you dry until you're dead as a company, which to some degree is what happened with Filament. But that's in contrast with what we're doing now, which is focused on consumer side within the realm of uh, creative users, so uh, specifically songwriters and musicians. So our, our company is focused on helping songwriters finish more of their songs, basically do more of what they set out to do, which seems like a, you know, when I, when I pitch it and sometimes when I even like hear myself say it, it feels very cutesy or, you know, oh, that's nice sort of thing compared to something like, you know, autonomous automobiles, you know, 
transacting like filament was doing but in some weird ways it actually feels much more authentic because it's i'm a musician myself and i've struggled with writing songs for years because mostly it's just really difficult and takes a lot of skill sets to do so and something that i know to be absolutely true for my music musician friends as well as myself is that those people who desire to create music they'll do it no matter what you know they'll do it if they get paid or not they'll do it what it's it's a need more than a want and it's a it's a deep desire to output something creative and something beautiful and it feels really good to work on a product in a company that helps bring more beauty into the world rather than helps the bottom line of a major fortune 50 and i, I mean that with all respect to the fortune 50s it's just totally it, it feels good to do something a little different this time well it, and i think that it speaks to you know, alignment with who you are, right? I think that as an entrepreneur, we create the world in our image, like you were talking before about, you know, wanting to mold the world. And, you know, it sounds like this one is very congruent with where you are right now. And, and I can totally relate to the situation at Filament. When I was running Priya, we partnered with Church and Dwight Corporation. And I, and I was just, I was like, they're an elephant and we're the mouse. Like, <laughs> right. we always know where they are and they can take one step and crush us and not even know they did it. Exactly. It's maddening to try to run a company like that. You know, you're constantly trying to check in with them and don't say the wrong things. And there's politics. And I mean, you know exactly how this goes. It's exhausting. Yeah, it's painful. And well, I'm, I'm really glad that you've, you know, found this new new company and you know, you're taking on a role of CTO, which sounds like a place that, you know, kind of going back to your technical roots. It is. I'm very excited. <laughs> I got to design hardware and software again for this because we have a hardware product and we have a software uh, product in this company. And so it's very, it's kind of hitting all the points that I really love. And, uh, you know, I had to kind of walk away from the CTO role in the last company just because you know, there were people that were better positioned to be in that role than I was at the time. And no one was in as good a position to be CEO as I was. And so it was one of those reluctant leader sort of things, you know, this is the right thing to do. And I really did appreciate, you know, leading a company, don't get me wrong, but I really am happy to be back in the technology again. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're a serial entrepreneur, you have a ton of experience in startups. So let's, you know, I want to talk a little bit about you know, the, the, your different startup experience and some of the lessons you've learned along the way. I mean, you've been doing this for a while. Mm. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you were trying to create in Filament and maybe some lessons you learned and maybe some outcome. You know, I'm just kind of curious. I mean, I know that it didn't uh, it didn't turn out the way that maybe all the investors wanted. And, you know, and I've had a couple of these companies. But what were some of the really powerful lessons that you've learned along the way through that experience? Yeah, you know, Filament was one of the really interesting ones. So kind of a quick rundown of how, how the whole thing played out, and then we'll get into some of the best parts of it. Pinocchio was a company we started as an idea, a little hardware device that could connect physical things in the world and make them smart and connected uh, wirelessly. Back in 2012 or 11 was a very novel thing and had just, the, the say the art had just gotten to the point where it was cheap and it was uh, fairly reliable. And so we thought there'd be plenty of opportunities somewhere to build this platform and then connect things and maybe we'll end up making a thing. You know, we initially started that company, I initially started that that product in a bedroom in my home thinking that it would be a smart uh, sprinkler because we live in Nevada and, you know, we've every few years we seem to have a drought that, you know, we have, we're on rations and all that stuff with water. So, and it always bugged me that people were like watering the streets in the middle of the summer in Reno because their sprinklers were misadjusted or whatever. And um, so that's what we originally started at. But then we realized that, if we actually make a platform, other people can do this too. So we crowdfunded that. We were successful with a crowdfunding campaign by standards back then. Today, it would probably not seem like a success really. Based off of the success of that crowdfunding campaign, we uh, were able to raise a seed round of funding. And then that led us into, okay, having an actual you know, capital infusion, having the ability to hire some people. We had hired three people, I think. We were a team of four or five at that point. It felt really good because we could actually, you know, have some stability with your <laughs> income. You could have an income actually, which is, you know, always a nice thing because you can only go so long without one. Yeah. Ramen gets a little old after a while. <laughs> it, does. Right? it does. And you know, your family, your spouse starts to get a little, little upset that things are not moving forward as much. So we had a point where we were really struggling to grow the company further than hobbyists and makers. And so we ended up refocusing re completely. Well, I shouldn't say completely, but largely re-aiming or realigning the company towards the enterprise and industrial space where we knew that connected things 
absolutely affect bottom lines. Things like connected, you know, pipelines, connected uh, factory floors, fleets of vehicles, et cetera, absolutely do lead companies to save money or make money. And we thought there'd be a good opportunity for revenue there rather than just hobbyists, even though we were hobbyists ourselves and we had to kind of say goodbye to them a little bit. We rebranded the company as Filament and raised uh, another round of funding. And that's when I became CEO. Pretty significant round, right? Yeah. yeah. So the first one was a million dollar round. That was just after the crowdfunding and that was still Pinocchio. And then we raised a $5 million A round and that was incredibly significant. I mean, at the time for me, that's, we never raised anything close to that before. And that was scary and exciting all at once. And I think you were one of the only companies in the Reno at the time to raise anything close to that too, which was again, you know, linking back to the history was, you know, really st- standing out. And I, you know, I just remember the the support of the local investors helping sure, sure. kind of connect oh, yeah. you to two tech stars and that whole, I mean, I, I think I remember there was a day you, you, you had maybe like a week of cash in the bank or something. <laughs> That's was- right. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was um, the second. Yeah. That was the third round. So there was, after we got the 5 million, we were, you know, cruising along for a year and a half trying to get, you know, enterprise, trying to do deals with power companies and all these other things and finding it difficult to hit multiple industries. And so we were realizing we'd have to focus even further in the industrial to focus on a singular um, vertical. And it was, we were getting short of money at that point. Yeah, that was terrible. And so we, uh, this was when David Cohen was like, you should really apply to Techstars. I think this is, a, I think this is the time. And, uh, and we ended up uh, getting down to about a week of money and it's around October, it's around Halloween. And we had a week of money left. Basically we, one more week, we could make our last paycheck. So we had a week before, hey everyone, this is your last paycheck. And we were really communicative with everyone. That's always been a big, belief for me is, you know, hey, if you don't feel comfortable with this team, I'll write letters of recommendation, whatever, but like, just want you to know so that you don't, you know, there shouldn't be surprises like, hey, no more money, the day of no money, right? You should, I mean, you don't want to overstress people, but you got to communicate with them, I believe. Sure. Especially in something that critical. Yeah. This is like their livelihood and they have kids and stuff. So we were hearing back from Techstars. I think I have my numbers right. I might've been off by a round, but we would hear back from Techstars whether or not we got accepted to the program. And we had investors who would put in money and bridge us if we got into the program. But if we didn't, then game over. And so we're waiting with bated breath and waiting with bated breath. And we got a phone call and we got in. And this was, yeah, I think five days before our last paycheck cut. So, um, yeah, you know, it's it, it, we had a lot of support. Local investors came through big. In fact, it was a local investor group that bridged us. And if it weren't for them, we wouldn't have made it. Like we, we needed that money to get through the program um, and pay, you know, for travel. And we had to get a big old apartment and in New York and stuff like that. So I just, I want to drill in on this because this is such an important moment that I remember what, you know, you had five days of capital, you had some local investors, you, you needed to get to, to tech stars. And if I remember correctly, there was a, a conversation where you were talking to your local investors to get this bridge of a half million dollars. And they, you know, their pro rata was less than that. And I think they said, well, what can we do to help? And I, I filmed the story because I think this is so critical. Like, I love this story. <laughs> That's right. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you remembered this. That's a, I don't remember actually telling you this story, but it's a, I think it's an important one. And there's a lesson in there, which was, yeah, they asked us what they could do. And they were going to put in something like, I don't know, 150 or 200,000. We needed 500 to get the entire team and company through four months of burn and the program and things like that and have a, a month and a half left for fundraising. And they said, what else can we do? We want to put in 150. And I, you know, I'm sitting at this table in their conference room. And I said, what you really need to do is put in all 500,000, <laughs> right? Which is <laughs> yeah. kind of, which is really, you know, who am I to tell them what to put? It's their money, right? But there's a certain point where you have to speak up and say what you need. And it's not being greedy. It's not being egregious or brazen or hubristic. It's what the company needed. And I was in charge of making sure the company had what it needed. So the people working there could actually deliver and we can move forward. Right. And that's really the CEO's job is to deliver and to build the platform and the keep the lights on so that the team can excel at what they are really good at. And, um, and, you know, surprisingly and luckily enough, they kind of sat back in their seats and kind of looked at each other with their raised eyebrow and, and looked around and asked anyone if anyone of the investors was actually, you know, not in favor of this. And people were, I think, kind of taken aback by it and then all kind of started to nod and, unison and said, okay, we'll do it, which was awesome because then we could be like, stop fundraising. We got it. Now we can get to New York. Now we can do this. What a seminal moment. I, I just remember, I mean, it's so proud 
of our community. I was so proud of you. I mean, th- it just reminds me of a key thing in life, which is like, you never get anything you don't ask for. That's right. You have to. And, you know, there was a very, that was a very powerful moment. And as a, like, I know that sometimes CEOs under pressure, you know, either cave or what, but like, here was an opportunity for you to go ask for exactly what you needed and they did it. And I think that that, that just, I've never forgotten that story because I think it just says so much. I'm surprised that I even was able to say that because I tend to be fairly demure and try to, you know, not really not be agreeable all the time necessarily, but I'm not one to just go out and just demand. And so I really had to make sure that our team could deliver and that it was the right ask at the right time. You know, it's like, I'm not sure this is a good analogy, but if you only have so many bullets, you know, you got to make them count. So sure. when you use them, you got to make sure you use them correctly. You can't just be firing off in all directions and, and, you know, hope something sticks. I don't think that's a good strategy. So no, well, you're yeah. Nevadan, so you can use gun references. <laughs> all you want. It's no problem. We're, we're cool about that. Exactly. <laughs> That's good. So after you, you know, you went to TechStars and you raised this big round and you've, you've shifted, you had to scale the company and I know you had, you were probably early on building distributed teams. So, you know, what, what were some of the challenges you faced after you, you know, most people think, gosh, if I can, you know, raise north of $15 million from, I'm like golden, you know, like that's everybody's dream. More money, more problems, right? It's like, it's totally, it is. Yeah. So we, you know, at the end of that last round, we raised 15 and a half million, something like that. So at that point we were in it about what, 20, I did my math right, 23 million, something like that and change because we had some pro rata and some extras. But so that's a good chunk of money, 15 million in the bank, you know, that, that, um, seems like you're set. Now you just got to figure out a way to grow and scale and find your acquirer. The tricky thing is that, so yes, to your point, we had a distributed team or at least a decentralized team. Um, We had main office in Reno. We had an office in Denver because we had a lot of key people there. And then we had a couple of people scattered around Minnesota. We had two in the Bay Area. We had one in Atlanta and one in Texas, two in Texas, um, one in Pennsylvania as well. So kind of all over. And um, that's, tough. You know, I've, I've worked in remote teams myself uh, for most of my life because again, living in Reno and wanting to work in tech, I often found myself applying and working for companies in other cities. And some things work well and some things don't. What seems to work best, I believe still, is either you have everybody in the same group, same, same physical location, or you try to have everyone distributed. Meaning, and doesn't necessarily mean they can't live in the same town, just means that you have to do the bulk of your communication through the same tools that everyone else has to use. So if that's Slack, if that's Notion, if that's Google Docs, if that's email, whatever you use, you got to stick by that. If you do this hybrid thing where you've got like a main office and a couple of satellite folks, inevitably those satellite folks become second class citizens within your company because someone's walking to coffee with someone else and they're having a chat and they decide something cool or this great idea comes along. And then the person who doesn't live there has to be like, wait, what are you talking about? They're like, oh yeah, last week we were talking. It's like, oh man, that feels bad. You know, that's not good. And you get this synch- synchronous synchronicity, I guess, that starts to get lost. You start to lose this kind of vibe and this heartbeat of the company when that starts to split. So, so yeah, we had a we we had kind of the worst of three worlds because we had main office, we had a pretty big second office, probably about eight or ten people in Denver. 15 or 20 people in Reno and then a couple scattered around. So we even had a hard time keeping Denver and Reno synced. Um, And that actually caused some pretty big issues down the road because, you know, we were flying it. I was flying to Denver weekly almost. Uh, Our team was always back and forth. Southwest flight, Reno, Denver, two and a half hours one way, three hours the other way with the jet stream. You get used to that flight, but wow. But I think, I think it's very relevant to the world today. I mean, you were early adopters in that in that methodology, largely out of necessity and, and the structure of your company. That's right. But now the world has gone, you know, like completely upended because of COVID. And I think a lot of people are trying to deal with this. I mean, are there, you know, so what I heard you say is hybrid is dangerous because you can create second class citizens. Are there other kind of key things that? that yeah, I that? think, you know, I think that, um, you know, keeping in a weird way, I kind of, I'm hopeful that there will be a silver lining out of the COVID, you know, terrible COVID issue we we find ourselves in that finally shows these companies, the ones that are stubborn, that it absolutely is possible to have people work remotely and that it's actually not too bad of a deal. Like, you know, they get a better work-life balance. I mean, anyone who's been in the Bay Area and has tried to drive, you know, to an airport at 4.30 in the afternoon, like 
or anywhere for the afternoon. Forget knows. about it. Yeah. It's like, that's not how people should spend their lives. I'm sorry. I just don't believe that you spend your life in three hours in a car a day, whether that's Southern California or Northern California or the Northeast or wherever. We don't have to do that, especially with technology now. We really don't have to do that. So the pandemic in some ways I think has been a good forcing function to show managers. Now I'm sure there'll be a large cohort that says, back in seats, right? Netflix, whoever it was. But, you know, I think that might be the minority at this point. Big lesson, I believe, and even with Tonic Audio Labs now is that, you know, we are working out of our home. And so we're very, very small right now, but we have a few people working, you know, I've got, uh, my son does some programming, so he's helping me code. And Ethan, my husband is working on that sort of uh, the CEO role and really the, the, the connecting with all the people in Southern California and LA area, which is obviously a huge music scene and keeping track of all that. And so there's a whole bunch of work to do. So we're kind of a nice small group, but we start to grow. We can't all work out of our house, right? So we'll have to make that decision, um, but we'll go, We'll if we hire anyone that doesn't in Reno, we'll go distributed. We will not go hybrid is my my firm like flag in the ground. I won't budge yeah. on that one. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's really good insight and very timely uh, as everybody's trying to figure this out. I know sure. this comes up in economic development all the time. Like, are we going to, do we need to build more buildings? Do we have office space? Right. Are people going to be at home? You know, how does that work? And, you know, I think hybrid sounds good potentially on paper. You but want I think- it to sound good. Yeah. You want it to work. Any manager, any CEO wants it to work because it's the best of all worlds. Absolutely. If it did work, if it did work, yeah, Yeah. but you know, ask a CEO to like, you know, work away, but have the office somewhere else and see how fast they like it then. Right. That's how you can tell if a CEO is really down with the hybrid model, then like, cool, you move to Colorado by yourself or go live in your Tahoe, you know, wherever you live. And we're all going to stay here and get working and you just call in, right. That would never fly with any CEO. And this is why, because you can't really stay pulsed unless everyone's using the same tool. That's really good insight. So after you know you had this distributed team and you'd raise all this money and you're scaling, kind of tell me about what what happened after that. Yeah, you know, so this was part of the part of the process. Um, we were we had raised ten million dollars um, out of the fifteen. So we had we had just enough to do an initial close. And you know, as many people know, some listeners may not know, is that um, this was about this was about the time that I had actually come out as transgender. And so it was very difficult time for obvious reasons, because it's just a very difficult process to go through. But I was also really concerned that this, my need to be able to, to actually share this with people. In fact, it was getting to the point because I was already in hormones at that point where I had to start telling people because I was starting to look different physically and you can't hide that much after a while. And so I was really, really concerned. I was very fearful that, my own personal issue with this could harm the company and fundamentally my employees, right? And that was really, really um, concerning to me because I would never want, it's one thing if I have a thing I need to go through, but I would never want that to actually affect uh, the livelihoods of the team that I cared so much about and that has been kicking so much ass for me and for the company for so long. So I had decided that I would keep it quiet until I was able to get at least the initial round closed. And that just means the at least the majority of the round was completed and then I would then put, uh, we would we would wire that money over. And then the last five, if I lost that because of coming out, then so be it. We'll go find it elsewhere. Sure. We can move off of the 10. But there was one major investor, very large investor, uh, Intel Capital. Don't mind saying their name because they did a good job on this one. Their lead investor was a, a man named Pat Walsh and um, really cool guy, really funny guy. Um, he'd been following us for a while and he wanted to invest. And they were actually going to lead the round, the $15 million round by putting five in, and then we would get the 10 from everywhere else. And I had an email drafted up that I was going to tell all of our investors New Year's Eve. I was going to email it out like 10 p.m. and just be like, you know what, like whatever happens, happens. I had come out to the team around October, so they all knew, but I hadn't told the investors yet. We got the confirmation of the of the initial close being done right, on, right before New Year's. So I shot off the email, I was like, well, you know, Intel could take it or not, or not, but they've been taking a long time trying to close this round anyways. I don't know why they took so long because they're a big company. So I got an email back from him like the next day and he's like, hey, let's have a chat on the phone. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> here we go. Oh, right? wow. yeah. Had the phone call with him 
and he goes, you know, he goes, first of all, congratulations. That's amazing. And so happy for you. You know, it's always so wonderful that, you know, you can live your true life. And that's, you know, I'm on a personal note, it's just absolutely delighted for you, which was really, really kind, which oh, I expected beautiful. nothing less from him. Yeah, it was really great. But I was waiting for the shoe to drop, right? The butt. And he goes, but and I'm like, oh, here we go. He goes, but had you told me about this maybe three months ago, I could have put you into our diversity portfolio and we would have been closed like two months ago. Wow. But since you're in our normal one, we've had to go through the normal big long process and that's why it's taken so long. But yes, of course, we'll still invest. It's will be probably be closed in the next two weeks and we'll wire that money in afterwards. So, you know, it's funny because I was so afraid about trying to keep personal life separate from business and try to like look the part. And maybe that's part of like, you know, running a company in Reno is that, you know, we're always trying to, um, at least I'm always trying to be at parity with what you see the best companies in the world in the Bay Area and others places to be. But it turns out that you just have to be human and, you know, good investors. And he was one of them um, invest in people and not companies. And if you're honest with yourself and you can, you know, I think continue to manage a company through that, um, I think that that speaks not not really to to toot my own horn, but I think that good investors look for people who are authentic. And you know, few things are more authentic than risking your <laughs> your entire career on on something as big as a transition. So yeah, you know, I just want to acknowledge you know you f for for your courage. I honestly think you're one of the most courageous people I know. I mean, well, what thank a you. what a powerful decision to make. I, I, you know, I had some situations, not nearly uh, as much on the line, but where there was complications that could have affected our fundraising that, mm. you know, I had to make some personal choices around things and, you know, not nearly to the level. No, that but still it's me. yeah. When personal and, and professional collide, it's scary, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, I'm just so happy to hear that, you know, your investors supported you and that, you know, that that wasn't an issue, but I can totally understand, you know, that transition must've been just scary. You don't know how the world, I mean, you, you see these things in the world, you know how you feel internally, but you're not sure how the world is going to accept you. And That's right. You don't know how Sand Hill Road will accept you, quite frankly, right? Sure. <laughs> that was yeah. definitely one of the big ones. And, you know, I was, I remember going into several different of those meetings and, and, and gone up and down that road so much in every single parking lot and every, you know, the Starbucks down the road and Sharon Landing or whatever it's called. So many of those. And, you know, I started to notice it a little bit how people kind of like double take when I first walk in, because this was right when I was, you know, in the in-between stage. In-between stage for anyone who's not familiar with it is the worst of a transition just because you're not, you know, you're on your way to transition towards the gender that you identify as, but your body's still in like this early puberty mode, just like, you know, everyone hates their first puberty. Well, this is just a second puberty. <laughs> so sure. Just as bad, right? <laughs> Where you're, you know, learning new things and you're doing things wrong and you don't quite look, you know, you just look like you're in transition literally. But um, Sound Hill Road was a little bit tricky because I think they have such a pattern matching thing going on down there. And when you don't quite look like the, you know, white cishet male, you look a little bit different than that. There's a couple more little hurdles you got to jump through. And I don't want to say that's the reason we had struggles there, you know, because we had investors that came from there. But but there, there were many of them who were just like, I knew that it was something more than just what we were trying to offer. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering if you had faced any you know, particular challenges with the investor community or in that stage? I mean, obviously, no one's going to say we're not investing in you because of, of that. No, yeah, but they're, they're not that. Yeah, they're smart. Enough I mean, to they never say that. no, even when they, you know, <laughs> want to say no. Anyway, but they'll always, yeah, they'll always give you a reason. It's just not the, the truth, usually. <laughs> or it's maybe, you know, a partial truth, right? But um, I think, I think, you know, it's a good point. It's a good question. The investors we had already had before I came out were almost completely 100% supportive. I think there were a couple that were a little bit uncertain or maybe just it was new to them. So they were, you know, um, I had one investor who was really kind. He was just like, he goes, I'm so happy for you, but I've got so many questions like, and I don't want to be rude, but like, I just really want to know how this all works. And like, you know, very, very kind, just like open, wanting to know more. As a quick aside, I've had um, someone who was a part of an investment group message me recently who um who was you know just out of the blue and this you know we've been closed for you know, 14 or 15 months now who said that they uh 
they wanted to thank me for like, you know, being so open too, because they're also now actually starting their own transition, which was just absolutely mind blowing to me. So I was like, wow, like, you know, I mean, you never, having gone through it, you always want people to live their true selves, right? Wherever it is. And hopefully no one has to go through this, but you know, those who do hopefully is a good one. But, you know, I think it goes both ways is my point is that, you know, it's easy to constantly be thinking, what are they going to think about me? But you got to remember that, that they're also thinking, what is that founder going to think about me, right? <laughs> As an investor who might be transitioning too. So it's uh, it does go both ways because we're both human, but there were some ups and downs with people who, you know, I think people who I was pitching to who hadn't invested yet, some companies, uh, you know, we had dealt with a lot of industrial companies who were in the Midwest and that can tend to lean more conservative um, with certain people who work there. And so I think that was a little bit hit and miss. So I would send out some of my salespeople to go meet with them first and build a rapport before I made it out there. But I don't know if they knew about my status or not. And I didn't really care to be quite honest. If they're going to make a deal out of that, then we probably shouldn't work together. It's a good filter, but it's just interesting because I mean, you have, uh, we had this coffee at coffee bar one time and it was just so fascinating because you know, you have multiple perspectives on That's life, right. right? Like you've, <laughs> you've lived life from the view, from the vantage point of a male or, a, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and then now you've, you know, shifted to transgendered female and we, we had, and I, you know, hopefully I'm using the right um, pronouns, but one of the things that I, I just, this conversation was so fascinating to me, you, you were sort of in this transition period and you said, you know, I still remember what it's like to, to feel like testosterone. And then you kind of have now, now I, I look at things through the, the lens of estrogen or something that's to that right, effect. That's right. Yeah. And how you could, ha- you had a reference of both and it was it's, fascinating. I was like, it's it's like I wish I knew this. I, could, I would probably understand. I relate with my wife so much closer. You if absolutely I could understand. Would. I absolutely believe you would. <laughs> it's true. And, and she would relate with you much more if she had the same experience. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's absolutely wild how powerful hormones are. Right. I mean, it's a mistake to blame everything on them for people's personalities, et cetera. You know, it's it's dangerous and I think, you know, insensitive to go like, oh, you know, they're just, you know, they're just emotional, right? That woman's just emotional. That doesn't work. Just like saying like that that guy is barbaric. Like not all guys are barbaric. Not all women are emotional, right? But there is definitely a tendency to change some of your mood and some of your perspective based on the hormones or the fuel that you run on, right? Do you run unleaded or unleaded, right? We always joke about that. And um you know, if you're running on the wrong fuel, then your engine doesn't run very well and you're puttering and sputtering and everything. And that's just like if you're on the wrong hormone as your body. And when you're on the right one, then you're like, wow, like this thing actually works. I can actually think straight and I can, you know, sleep well and all those other things. So it has been very fascinating looking through the lens in technology uh, industry from both sides. And, you know, it's one thing to look to the world through the eyes that are powered by testosterone and through eyes that are powered by estrogen. But it's another thing to be seen by the world being perceived as male and then also being perceived as female because, you know, relationships are two ways and there is absolutely a bias in technology and it sucks, uh, gender bias. Um, it is real. It is not a thing. It is not made up. It is not, you know, a pipeline problem. There's all sorts of fundamental issues with it that I think our industry is going to have to address. I used to be one of those people who thought, who believed in meritocracy out of the board and out of the gate. And it's like, oh yeah, I just work hard, right? It's not the case. And I've, I remember having a very explicit, it was a, it was a panel discussion at a, at a maker fair. And I was on a panel with a, with a woman and another person, another guy, and then the panelist talking about, you know, the technology meritocracy. And I was up there touting my, oh yeah, it totally is. And I look back now just cringing going like, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. And I even emailed her later, a couple of years later and, and told her and apologized basically saying, you know, I was way off base. And she of course was very gracious and like said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know this now, don't you? <laughs> but the point is, is that like, you know, sometimes you don't see these things and you really do need to listen to people who have perspectives that are different than you to believe that things actually exist like that. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's wisdom. I mean, it's wisdom, Allie, and you have such a unique perspective. Well, thank you. The fact that you have been on both sides is in technology it, and and transitioned in what is probably one of the more sensitive po- moments in a company. You know, you've got all the money on the line and closing. And then just the drive, I remember we were talking about, you were very conscious of the fact that you were trading internal contentment for possible external judgment or people, you know, people not looking. And 
you know, I think I can think of nothing that's more valuable than living a life that's congruent or authentic. Um, but I can imagine how challenging that can be to to go through that process and yeah. and finally make the decision to go forward. It is. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think, you know, there was an investor that said that exact thing. He was an investor in us already. And he said, you know, and our, our attorney actually said the same thing. He's like, you know, this, I can't imagine because I had actually, we had actually discussed this with our attorney before we came, before I came out to the investor saying like, is there anything that I need to do? Right. And he's such a good guy. And he was like, no, like, first of all, they're idiots if they give you any trouble. And second of all, they should be so happy that you're going to be more like, you know, congruent. And hopefully, you know, I'm assuming the, 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 you know, dysphoria and the depression and things like that will probably reduce. And if that's the case, then that should be something to celebrate. Right. And so, yeah, they, you're right. There was, there were, um, people who saw that perspective that was really good, but it's, it's been a wide, a really eye-opening experience. And now in this company, you know, this is the a company that I actually have founded and started, you know, post-transition. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this is happening, especially in the music industry, which, you know, tech music industry, but still music industry, which is also very gender bias, right? Incredibly gender bias when you get into like recording and studios and producers and things like that. It's horror stories that you hear about, terrible people doing terrible things to underrepresented people. So it'll be really interesting to see how this one goes. But, you know, it's also a very progressive industry, right? Very open-minded. So that's good. But yeah, you know, it's I, you're right. Be, having that congruency has been so critical for my own personal well-being. But I feel like I can think through our problems much better now. Like I have a clarity of mind I didn't have before. I had a lot of drive, but it was almost like, you know, a ping pong ball bouncing around everywhere rather now i feel like i'm much more focused and mindful and working much more diligently and smartly at what we should be getting done and can still push through like i haven't lost my endurance which you know you never know am i gonna be able to still code you know eight hours a day or not i don't know like i didn't know i didn't know like and it's not a, a dig on it it's just that you don't know how your body is going to respond to it how your mind will respond to it and it's all still there, Doug. So that's great. I mean, we're such adaptive machines. I mean, I, I, you know, I've been really into personal development and kind of biohacking and all, and it's just amazing to me the resiliency and the adaptability of our human machine. It is truly remarkable, and I think. And we're we're more similar than we are different. I mean, different genders and whatnot, right? Like every cell and every human body can express based on exposure to estrogen or testosterone and everybody has both in them just different levels right so you know there's not really a binary it's like you're just you know it's a continuum of of certain traits and we're all just very unique and wonderful and it's just fascinating to like work with others who are just kicking ass at what they do and and kind of come together and build something bigger you know gender and everything else aside it's just really amazing to work and do things together as a small community or a group of people. And that's what I love so much about the startup community. Um, and just being in this for so long is that there's nothing like it. Yeah. It's interesting how the startup, I mean, the startup community has evolved a lot since you know we were first started. I mean, it's been fascinating to watch the growth and evolution and, you know, I mean, we're, we're fully in the center of it all, or, well, I feel like we're always kind of the ghost in the machine or the, the grease that helps other people do what they need to do. Sure. But it has definitely gone through stages where I think there was this early stage of group of people, we were all like rolling up our sleeves and really in it. And then everybody sort of got to work. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, like it was like cool to be in the startup thing. I'm like, no, it's cool to have like a successful company. That's right. And yeah, then don't, sort of, don't brag about raising money. Brag about revenue, right? Yeah. Who was it? You that was? It was like you know, or maybe it was Colin Loretz that was saying it's like you know things. Don't waste your time on going to. There, there was something about like this doesn't constitute work. Going to every startup event does not constitute. Yeah, probably. Work. Yeah, Colin. I think that was Colin's. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely, it's true, right? It's like you know, your job is not to go to every single event or every single meetup. And in fact, it's it's dangerous if you live in the Bay Area. Cause there are so many of them. At least there were so many of them that you could spend every night going to this meetup, that meetup, this meetup. And you think you're doing great, but treadmilling isn't actually running the marathon. No, right? You can actually move forward. So, Yeah. So what are some of the things that you took from Filament that you're implementing in Tonic Audio Labs? Like what, what are some of the big lessons you've learned from that? And, and That's a good question. I think some of the things that I, I found, some things I've, I've, that happened or that I've experienced at Filament, I want to continue or pursue more at Tonic. There are some things that I experienced filament that I don't want to do again, or at least not right now. 
Um, the things that I have taken away from Filament that were so amazing was that it was the first company, I'll say Pinocchio and Filament together because it kind of evolved from one to another. Same company, essentially. That was the first company I'd ever worked in and had a firsthand experience working with um, dealing with hardware. And, you know, so many startups are software based for very good reason, because it's easier, it's faster, it's usually more profitable. But there is something really magical about hardware and holding something that you've built or you've designed and even more so having someone else use it and find delight in that. You know, humans are still tactile creatures, you know, as, as much as we spend times on, you know, as Cory Doctorow calls it, our distraction rectangles, you know, we... <laughs> We are still, we still like physical things, right? That's why, you know, people enjoy cars and hiking and all these things because all the five senses really do need to be utilized, I think, for us to be fully human. And so there's something really wonderful about that. I wanted to do that here, um, not for the sake of just doing hardware. There had to be a good business reason and a good problem to be solved reason. But so that was one thing I took from that. I was like, I'd really like to do that again. And so we are doing that again. We have a hardware device that is basically a songwriting assistant that's um, pretty novel in a lot of ways and how it actually helps that songwriter. And that's probably for another chat, but there's a hardware component that we'll have. There is a very strong software component too that we'll be using to kind of build the virality into it. You know, one thing that Filament didn't get to experience much, but I had done in other companies is really leveraging the social graph and virality. And, you know, like this is stuff that were like buzzwords back in, you know, 10 years ago, right? Sure. Like, coefficient right for your sharing <laughs> and all this stuff and and that actually really works well right you know even Andreessen Horowitz wrote an article recently it has a whole series of articles called uh, social plus I think they call it which is basically you know I think Chris Dixon describes it as you know come for the tool stay for the network sort of thing and where you like you know provide a tool problem to be solved and all of a sudden there's a network there and you're like I'm just going to stay because like everyone else is there using that tool too and now it's social right so it's social plus tool right and so that I think is really powerful. And so tapping back into that, something Filament did not do that we'll be doing now. But you know, I'm trying really hard. One of the biggest things is I'm really trying hard, and Ethan and I both, to not raise money or raise money as late as possible with this one, which is a little different. So that's something we certainly didn't do with Filament. But I'm maybe it's because I'm sensitive to Filament, you know, not hitting the goals that it set out to do or what. But I really do want customers using our products and paying us money monthly or annually recurring before we set out for money, before we set out to actually raise money. Now we may take a little bit. We have some friends and family who are like, no, just like, let us like, we want in again, right? So like, okay, cool. Like, that's great. But it's going to be a very, very small amount. We've been living off of our savings for, you know, since uh, filament wound down. So it's kind of scary because your, your savings goes down and you're not sure. making any money and you're like, okay, get your code done. So, you know, it's hard to take days off and things like that. But Filament, I really want to, unlike Filament, I really want to slow the fundraising down. I mean, there's lots of really good, you know, financial reasons to do so. You don't dilute nearly as much. Sure. You better leverage when you actually do fundraise, if you want to fundraise. There's even new fundraising, you know, these more than I do, I'm sure, but like uh, NDVC, and I think there's one called like Microseed or something that has a little bit different terms in how they how they invest. And I feel I feel like that's something to explore too. Totally. I think there's going to be, a, you know, we're going to see increasingly unique fundraising options. I mean, you know, revenue-based financing, there's some new things with that. There's, And I think this is one of those fundamental challenges all entrepreneurs have to face, right? You know, you, you read about, you know, raising capital and doing all these things, but you really have to match the capital strategy with the business opportunity. Absolutely. You know, if you, you know, if you can bootstrap it and get it to a place that makes sense, that's great. You know, there are some companies that, you know, I, I had a conversation with the founder of Sidecar and he was talking about one of the challenges he faced with Uber was they weren't aggressive enough in terms of raising money and grabbing market share. And so th the point about that was you really have to understand the market opportunity. What's it going to take to win here? And sometimes that means putting $10 million in the bank. And sometimes that means, you know, writing it out and grinding it out for a while until you go and that's true. Yeah, it's not always wrong or bad to fundraise. You're absolutely right. If it's a race for a market, you know, and you're like just redlining it there, you're absolutely right. You pour the coals on and you try to get there first as much as possible. But, you know, right now we uh, we uh, don't have a huge, we have a couple of competitors, but they're software only and they're also kind of more producer and like, you know, computer oriented where we're trying to get people away from the computer to make music. But it, so we have a little bit of a, a 
more open market, which may mean there's no market, right? There's some competitors, but we don't quite have that. But yeah, you know, I'm really interested to see how these like new funds can work because, you know, there's, I forget exactly the terms, but there's one that's basically says, we'll invest as much into your company based on this many founders. We own this percent of the company. So they basically set the valuation for you. And then you can set your founder income up to, I think, pretty high number, like 250,000 a year, 300,000 a year per founder salary. And we'll take nothing. And then anything after that, if you draw out of it, then we also get a draw, like a dividend. So they basically are, are what I like about this is that it's it provides the capital you need up front for a startup. But if you want to build a company that is not dead set on cancerous growth, like a lot of startups are required to do with fundraising, then you have that option. Sometimes things take a while. Like had we had that $15 million in the bank of filament. And I didn't have investors saying you need to set a budget that spends that 15 million in 18 months. You know, that's like, that's like almost a million dollars a month burn. That's crazy. Right. But they were like, no, you don't ride this out. Like you do it. And so we ended up hiring expensive people who were very good, but too early for the company. And had we not had that pressure to grow so quickly, I'm almost certain filament would have found a really good business. We could have waited out these long industrial customers and it would have been amazing. And we probably would be, much more profitable than we ever hit before. But that's not the game that you played with the VCs at the time, right? They had a certain window of investment. They needed to see those incomes returns. So I'm really happy to see that there are some investors now that are starting to think differently. And I think that they'll become much more popular in the next 10 years or so because founders don't want that either. No, you need a lot. You need incentive alignment. And that's right. a lot of the structures that we have today are not entirely incentive aligned, right? Like the, the fact that, you, you know, I've heard this story many times where your investors put you under pressure to do something that feels incongruent with the founder. I mean, you know, hopefully that's not true, but that does happen. And many companies have faced that same challenge. Sure. And there's even, yeah, there's even implied, right? Even if the founder would put that pressure on themselves, knowing that they want that investor to follow on later on, right? If you have a major investor who's not going to follow on the next round, it's a death warrant for your company, right? And so it's um, it's really, really nice to know that there would be an alternative. You know, if a company wanted to wait it out, right? Hey, we're just going to like slow our roll, slow our growth, wait out the pandemic year, and then we're going to hit it hard again them having that ability is really, really powerful. So I'm, I'm hopeful for that. It's a difficult place. I mean, I remember when we were raising money for for Priya, the medical device company, and that takes, by definition, it takes a long time. And right. there's just- <laughs> It's its own special hell, isn't it? <laughs> I just remember you know, running through our initial clinical trials and needing to raise money and going to the science team and be like, what's the data? Like, how does it look? And they're like, it doesn't look good. And I'm like, you gotta make it look good. And they're like, it doesn't <laughs> look good. You know? And I was like, <laughs> totally. oh my God. You know, okay, you know, just be honest, be, you know, that's where your integrity comes through. But oh, Indeed. man, that was, there's just, it's, I can only imagine, and you have the types of certifications that we never had to deal with. And so I can, I'm not envious of you at all. I don't know how you did it. That's really difficult. I didn't do it very well. Honestly, I, you know, personally, it was a real struggle for me. It, you know, I really lost my way. To be honest with you, I, I think that even though it, it failing from a financial standpoint, it was a bummer, arguably it was the best thing that ever happened. I, if I would have gone down that trajectory, I would have probably lost my wife. I probably would have, you know, just put a lot of pressure on me. My, my mother and I became estranged, although we've patched it up now and it's it's great. It really brought me to, you know, my own personal development. I learned so much that I've been able to bring into the work at Edon. And, you know, when we, you know, when I sit here and talk with entrepreneurs, I can relate. So there was just so many positive things that came out of it, even though the financial outcome wasn't what I wanted. But it took me a long time to reconcile that and to really look back on that experience as being probably one of the best things that could have happened. That's great to hear, right? I mean, if you, yeah, if you zoom out, like you said, from the startup to, you know, to your life, then it's like, hey, this is a great thing that happened. Um, if you zoom into the startup, then people would be like, that's not a great thing happened. But, you know, again, like, I think these companies that we start exist for people, not the other way around. And it's important to remember that sometimes and it's good for a reminder every once and again. So I'm glad that it happened to you <laughs> as yeah. bad as it may have felt at the time so that, you know, you're in a better spot today. Oh, yeah. No, I, I would definitely not want to go back to that time. But, you know, I, I really think that there is no such thing as failure. You either get the outcome that you wanted or you get a powerful lesson. 
And right. the lesson has been wildly more valuable. Again, you know, in the moment, it's pretty brutal sometimes. but For sure. Yeah. And you shouldn't pretend it isn't. It's terrible, right? I mean, no, it's terrible. Yeah. It took me three months after, you know, Filament's final day, basically. And we said, well, this is it. You know, I had like a few months of just, you know, kind of go through your grief and all that. Oh, it's, yeah. It's like, man, I dumped seven years of my life into this and like thought for sure this was going to do well. And it didn't. Right. But, you know exactly like you, you get through that and then you're like, okay, I'm better for it. The wonderful people that I have relationships with that I worked with, you know, it's been amazing. Good group of investors that, you know, if we ever want to tap on again and see if they were interested, I'm sure there'd be something there. So that you can't get any other way. And, you know, if you're, if you're high up saying individual, you became better for it, then you're all the better to be investable again. Right. So it really is a positive. I mean, it teaches, I mean, it's, it really speaks to your resiliency right now. You know, you'll take the wisdom of that experience into this next experience. And, you know, uh, that's, you know, the, you'll be an even better steward of the next investor's money because you've gone through that experience. You've, you, you've learned that and, you know, you'll, you'll contribute even more wisdom to the startups that you help right. <laughs> along the way. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> exactly. How is it working with your spouse? I mean, you know, you have a young baby and yeah, you're working with your spouse. Old. That's it. Yeah. It's been wild. You know, it's, it's funny because, you know, a year ago, January, so just over a year is when we started working from, from home when filament really wound down. We still had some work we had to do. So we, you know, got paid a little bit for that, but like closing the companies and paying off bills and all that junk, basically winding down. But we've, you know, it's been so wild because I w you know, we were prepared to go work from home for the next year or so before the pandemic hit. And then it hit and strangely, like we were pretty prepared for it, um, but we had been trying to have a child for four years. And, um, and finally it happened, you know, when was it S September, a year ago, September, well, a little longer than that, right? Two years ago, September, we got pregnant and then had the baby uh, May 30th, right? So oh, congratulations. You know, I can't you. wait to see her. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. And even more crazy, like, you know, the night we were in the hospital and she was delivered was the night that Rena went in lockdown because of the BLM protests. And so like hospital gets locked down, like pandemic outside, it's like company's done. Like, it's like, what are we doing here? It's just so, so wild, but also it's just so, such an amazing experience too, again, to like see this, you know, young baby come into the world and going to do what they're going to do. And, and so it's been really good. You know, we, we, Ethan and I are both very focused when we work. So, you know, we're not, neither of us are ones to like really stay home or be, be stay at home parents really. Um, and so we found a really great place for her to stay during the day. And so we have her do that. And she loves it. She's, you know, there's two or I guess three other kids there with her and a daycare place. And she loves it. She comes home, she's laughing. Um, she loves going there. Her friends are there. And, um, and it's really nice because we can kind of keep our, our professional kind of work ethic and also our all of our stuff we need to get done for the startup we can actually stick on track but then we go and pick her up and we have dinner and so it's been really special it's actually worked out really well and ethan and i have always wanted to work on a startup again we worked on one about three ago i guess a while over a decade ago and then he did one called parlor shows which is super cool and the music oh, i love too. parlor shows right? we had them in the backyard was one of my yes. my favorite moments yours was one of the best ones actually it was really fun so you know parlor shows so the, the music startup we knew we would come back around the music at some point and um but we really enjoyed working together on a startup a while ago and we're like let's do it again like now it's a perfect chance right because you know either he was doing one and i was not or i was doing filament and he was doing something else and doing government relations or whatever so it's like let's actually do it together it's been amazing and i know not everyone can do it and then it's not some sort of guilt trip or expectation that everyone needs to be able to do it but for us we really enjoy just solving problems and you know wrapping on things and we'll go grab a coffee or you know we'll go grocery shopping even in the car talk about how do we do this strategy how do we do that strategy and it's really nice to have that opportunity so i'm really really happy i i, I can tell honestly I, I have to say it has been too long and i can just you, you just you have a, a joy that exudes in your voice and Thank i you. just i'm just really happy i mean you know it, it is it is not easy to be a startup ceo it is definitely not easy to ride the roller coasters of ups and downs and to have the positivity and to to really 
choose to live your most authentic life. I just, I think it just speaks volumes to well, who you, you are, Ali. I feel that way. And I appreciate that it's coming through because, you know, my father-in-law would ask uh, Ethan, like, how's Ali doing when I was working at Filament? And it was always like, oh, she's so stressed. Oh, things, so this, that, and the other thing. And finally, when, you know, it all ended, he, <laughs> he was like, you know, I never remember you actually saying you're having a good time <laughs> when you, whenever I'd ask you how you're doing or ask Ethan how you're doing. So I don't feel like that's the case now. I feel like it's enjoyable. It's fun. It's, it's, you know, it's a little bit slower paced, but still urgent. So I'm glad that it's coming through because I feel like that's a better way to live professionally. I think, you know, in hindsight, I prefer this one. It may not be as investor friendly or as investable, whatever you want to call it, but for peace of mind and just enjoyment of what I do every day, I, I feel like I'm the luckiest person in the world. So in that sense, it's, t- it's priceless, you know? Yeah. Well, you are. I mean, I, I think that if you can live uh, your best life and enjoy what you're doing every day, then that's winning at life. Right. So I, I think you're winning. I well, know you're winning. You. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> well, hey, look, I think we're running up against our time window, but I've just so enjoyed this conversation, Ali. It's- Likewise. It's been so good to connect again. Yeah, you as well. And thank you for, again for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.